we here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed want to share a stress warning with you. Our cases and stories involve mental illness, sexual assault, suicide, gun violence, and emotional trauma. Please listen with care. If you or someone you know is suffering in the U.S., please reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my dear friend, Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hey! Hey everyone, Mel and Beck here. We just wanted to drop in and remind you to follow us on our social medias. So our Instagram and our Facebook are Rocky Mountain Red-Handed, and our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. Yeah, so go and check out our social medias. We always post great pics that have to do with our uh, cases, case notes, anything that we find interesting, we share with you guys. Also, Mel, what's that email address? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Yeah, send us in your case recommendations. We want to know about local cases in your community and how they have affected your towns. So hit us up. Let us know of of the cases you want to hear in the Rocky Mountains. Hi, Becky. How are you? Hey, Melanie. How are you? I'm doing good today. Ready to get into our next story. I'm so excited to share this case. This has been, this case may be the one that like got me wanting to podcast. I love this case. Yes, I'm excited about this one as well. And it is a long one. It is going to be two parts. So we're going to jump in just to it right away because there's a lot to tell. Our first double episode. Yeah, we're excited. So when we hear a true crime story, we go straight to thinking about the bad guy, don't we? That's usually what we think about. We don't usually think about the woman and how a woman could do an awful deed. Yeah. Well, like for the most part, I mean, statistically speaking, men are seven times more likely to take someone's life than a female. Yeah. And that that makes sense. But this story is going to kind of change that around for us a little bit. Yeah. And I was actually thinking when I was writing the story, like other than matricide, it's really hard to think of a woman killer. The only one I could think of is um, Lizzie Borden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's not very many cases that come up. That's pretty deep in history. So, yeah, let's get right into it. Well, let me take you back to 1931. It's a regular old Sunday, October 18th, 1931. Most families have gone to church and eaten a big Sunday meal. The popular Sunday supper was ham. Back at this time, it was about 17 cents a pound. I wish that's what we paid. I know. (laughs) And cabbage, which was about four cents a pound. Al Capone had just been convicted of five counts of tax evasion in Chicago. Thomas Edison, the 84-year-old inventor, was on his deathbed, and Herbert Hoover was in the White House. A woman with a bandaged hand and her arms covered in bruises, carrying bags and two heavy, well-worn trunks, moved along a waiting train. She boarded the Golden State Limited alone, traveling from Phoenix, Arizona to Los Angeles, California. During the 350-mile journey, baggage handler H.J. Mapes noticed the woman's suspicious trunks, and the terrible smell of decomposition and seeping blood was very hard to miss. This wasn't actually that out of the ordinary at that time. Um, The U.S. was deep in the beginning years of the Depression, 
and hungry families would try to smuggle deer or other wild game meat along this route to feed their families. After arriving in Los Angeles, a train supervisor approached the woman and questioned her about her smelly trunks. Claiming not to have the key, she was told that she could not leave until the baggage was properly searched. The woman, a beautiful 26-year-old brunette, very petite and elegant looking, was scared, confused, and desperate to leave with her bags. The smell and the seeping blood coming from the trunks was not animal remains. It was coming from the bodies of her two closest friends. Here is the story of Winnie Ruth Judd, America's trunk murderess. Winnie Ruth was born to Reverend H.J. and Carrie McKennell on January 29, 1905 in Oxford, Indiana. It's about 100 miles outside of Chicago. Her father was a Methodist minister. Oxford was a small community, mostly farmers, with less than 1,000 residents. Just a year after Ruth was born, Oxford became world famous as the home of Dan Patch, Becky, why don't you tell us about who Dan Patch is and what his claim to fame is? I don't know if you know this about me, Melanie, but I go down rabbit holes really, really easily. I My brain is full of useless knowledge, and for some reason I had to include Dan Patch in the story. Dan Patch is not a human. He's a horse. A, har- a harness racing horse. In 1906, Dan Patch set the one-mile record at 1 minute 55 seconds, and this record stood for 32 years. He was America's first sports superstar. He was on all the magazine covers. It was a really big deal. So, yes, she is from the home of Dan Patch, the Dan Patch. So if you ever use that answer in trivia, you'll have to recognize Becky that that's (laughs) where you learn this. When Ruth was 19 in April of 1924, she married the much older Dr. William Judd. William was a World War I vet and more than 20 years older than Ruth. They married and moved to Mexico to set up his medical practice. Ruth was apparently really excited about the move. She loved his sense of adventure and the desire to help people. Well, due to his injuries from the war and with easy access to medication as a doctor, William was addicted to narcotics throughout their marriage. The marriage was pretty much doomed from the start. Yet, whenever his addiction was brought up in conversation to Ruth, no matter, I mean, all the way through her life, she always defended him. She claimed that it was not his fault he was addicted to painkillers. He had been given the drugs by the army to deal with his injuries from World War I. With his addiction consuming his life, he was not able to hold a job or pay bills. Ruth was also really close to a complete breakdown because of fertility issues. She was absolutely brokenhearted. She had gotten pregnant twice and lost each pregnancy to a miscarriage. She was barely 100 pounds and had tuberculosis. It seemed like her body could just not support and nourish a baby to full term. She dreamed of being a mother, and this was a heartbreaking reality for her to deal with in her life. It seems like a lot of women have to deal with that. It's it's really sad. William told Ruth to go back and to live with her family, so she headed home in an old beat-up car. Um, She was headed back to Indiana across the Mexico border. She had just made it into Phoenix, Arizona when her car broke down. She liked Phoenix and liked its weather. Her health thrived in hot, dry conditions due to her tuberculosis, so she decided to stay here. To support herself, Ruth got a job as a secretary at the Lois Grunwo Memorial Clinic. It's a private medical practice there in Arizona. She actually really loved her job, and she was really good at it. Her salary was $75 per month. Ruth set aside money to send to her husband each month, 
after he had admitted himself in a hospital for his addiction. Phoenix was a growing city with 48,000 residents. The collapse of the 1929 financial crash was not felt for several months in the new western city. The western cities, it seemed to, to come about several months later. What Arizonans most remember about 1929 was the growing economy due to tourism. $10 million in tourism came into the city in 1929. Phoenix was being marketed as a paradise, especially those suffering from tuberculosis. So let's talk a little bit about TB. What what exactly is tuberculosis? We've heard it several times already in this story. It was something that was quite common back then. Um, We don't have to worry about it much because of vaccinations, but at the time, TB was extremely dangerous. Yeah, around 1900, TB killed about one out of every seven people in North America and Europe. Wow. Tuberculosis is an infectious bacterial disease that mainly affects the lungs. The bacteria that causes TB spreads when an infected person coughs or sneezes. So it is super contagious. Yeah. So these health seekers flocking to Phoenix, nicknamed Lungers, came to the hot desert oasis. And this was good for their tuberculosis. Yeah. they have te- Phoenix has those high temperatures and that dry, dry air helped alleviate that cough. So what happened to be miles and miles of open desert at one time was now growing into miles and miles of paved roads with a network of water canals. Yes, Phoenix has this amazing network of water canals that were designed and engineered centuries earlier by the indigenous people who lived there. There's another rabbit hole I fell down. Like if you want something interesting to read, you guys read the Phoenix water canal system. It is really interesting. So most of these canals are now underground, but a lot of them are still used today. The canals were literally the lifeblood of the growing desert community in Ruth's time and also doubled as swimming holes for the local children. The skyscrapers, which was anything over four stories, (laughs) were beginning to pop up in the small six square miles of Phoenix. It even boasted a trolley line that would take you anywhere in town. Phoenix was a city of homes, schools, and churches, as the Chamber of Commerce stated. It was a growing community that people craved for their growing families. As all good American families at the time, life was to be built around the strict moral code. The man was to be the breadwinner and lead his family with honor. The woman was to raise, feed, care, and nurture her children as the God-fearing children stayed out of trouble and washed before sitting down to the home-cooked meal at 6 p.m. sharp. It's a little tongue-in-cheek there, yes. but it was like, you know, that cookie-cutter American dream. Yet, just like any growing city, Phoenix did have the dark alleys and dirty corners lurking in the heart of the community. They pretended there was no prostitution, or party girls as they like to kindly put it, The government tried to enforce the 18th Amendment, Prohibition, but no one really minded turning a blind eye to the rum coming up from Mexico. No, not in their city. On the outside, Phoenix was a fine place to live. To settle down and raise a family has an answer to most anyone's prayers. When 1930 rolled in, the effects of the Great Depression were felt in Phoenix. Two of the six banks in the city went under, and the city started to suffer. Think Grapes of Wrath, Dust Bowl Tales, that's that's kind of what we're getting into. Arizona had just become a state in 1912, which was just 19 years earlier. Most Americans had little to no knowledge of Phoenix. Well, that was just about to change because of one woman. This was the setting for Ruth's life. Independent, capable, and willing to work hard, Phoenix was a fine place for a woman on her own to start over and create a life. Ruth met Agnes Ann Leroy, 32 years old. She went by Anne, so we're going to call her Anne. 
Anne was from Oregon and had recently been through a divorce. She worked as an x-ray technician at the Grenwell Clinic. She introduced Ruth to her roommate, Hedvig Samuelson, who went by Sammy. Sammy was just 24 years old and from North Dakota. Sammy had taken a break from her teaching career because of a serious case of TB. The women had met and became close friends before traveling to Phoenix. They shared a small bungalow house right downtown. Ruth was friendly with many of the successful businessmen, married and unmarried, but mostly married, in Maricopa County at the time. One of these powerful men was Jack Halloran. He went by JJ, or Happy Jack, and was known for being a socialite and definitely a ladies' man. We're going to call him Jack because I think his nicknames are stupid. (laughs) They're a little ridiculous. Ruth had first met Jack when she had just moved to Phoenix. Her first job in Phoenix was as a governess or a nanny to the wealthy Lee Ford family. She loved working for the Ford family. Ruth always seemed to love to watch over and care for the people around her, so this was a perfect fit. She became quite friendly with the next-door neighbor in his wealthy neighborhood, Jack Halloran. Jack lived next door with his wife and three children, but this did not stop them from having a relationship. Halloran was 44 years old when they met and was one of the most successful men in Phoenix. He was a part owner of the largest lumber yard in Arizona. This was a very powerful position in a city that was growing overnight. He was a leader in politics, social circles, and at the Phoenix Country Club. He was known for his boisterous personality. He was charming, charismatic, and as the women would share, he had a very high libido, Melanie. Ruth introduced her new roommates to Jack, and he would often bring over business associates and friends to drink from Jack's many crates of booze he would have brought over from Mexico despite prohibition. They would listen to music and be entertained by Sammy, Anne, and Ruth. Ruth did confirm she had an affair with the Mary Jack Halloran. We're not sure if Anne and Sammy had a relationship with Jack, but we do know that he made very frequent visits over to their bungalow you know, sometimes with Ruth, but a lot of times without. So he spent a lot of time over there with the two girls. So we can make assumptions there, yes. but we don't mm-hmm. know for we sure. We don't know for sure. Jack would spend hours and hours, sometimes even, even overnight with the girls. He would leave them with presents, clothes, furs, food, alcohol, flowers, and cash. During the summer months, Phoenix breaks very much above 100 degrees. Melly and I live this life, don't we? I cannot imagine living without AC, and these people did. (laughs) That would just be so miserable. Yeah, this was pre-air conditioning, so there were very few swamp coolers. Um, I have no idea how they endured. I struggle in the summer even with air conditioning sometimes. Mm -hmm. So while we think of boiling alive, let's, (laughs) let's listen to this first message from our sponsors. Rocky Mountain Red Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my balance of nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my balance of nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code REDHANDED. Okay, a big thanks to our sponsors. So let's get back to our case. The more well-to-do families would leave Phoenix for the summer months. 
Some went to their second homes in San Diego, and many families actually had cabins in the mountains of northern Arizona. A lot of people don't know, but northern Arizona is really piney, beautiful, cool. I love Flagstaff. Um, I like watching the show Sister Wives. That's my guilty pleasure, and they live in Flagstaff. I have never seen that show. That's your guilty pleasure? I know. It's one that I watch. (laughs) The wives and children would stay for months at a time at the summer getaway houses in the cooler climates. The men, however, would travel back and forth, spending the weekdays in Phoenix and some, just a few, of the weekends with their families up north. This made Phoenix a city full of bachelor-living men during those long, hot days and nights of summer. Apparently, a lot of them would get lonely. I love the scandal in this episode. Very scandalous. Many women, just like Ruth, Sammy, and Anne, were there to keep these men company. All of this was not spoken about, and the wives either chose not to acknowledge it or didn't know about the hanky-panky going on. All three women, Ruth, Sammy, and Anne, eventually fell madly in love with the married Jack, and this caused some problems, obviously. Yes, of course. Jack had no intention of ever leaving his wife and children. He was just having a blast with the girls. The love triangle caused a huge rift between the women. After months of daily bickering and arguments, Ruth decided to move into her own apartment while Sammy and Anne stayed behind in the bungalow together. Now, there have been some decades of whispers about Anne and Sammy's relationship. Anne was known to be very masculine, and Sammy was very feminine. In fact, I think we are posting a picture of them together, and you you will know who is who. Mm -hmm. Anne was happy to work at the clinic, and she was the breadwinner between the two women. Sammy liked keeping house and taking care of anything that Anne needed. The bond between the two women was very strong, and they completely shared their lives together. Many people did believe them to be in a lesbian relationship, but they were also known to entertain men. So, I don't know, perhaps bisexuality may have been their lifestyle. Um, We don't know for certain, but we do know one thing. These women were really, really dedicated to each other. They took care of each other. They chose to spend their lives together. In October of 1931, Jack Halloran and his friends were planning a hunting vacation in the White Mountains in northern Arizona, Ruth offered to introduce the men to a friend of hers, Lucille Moore, a beautiful blonde woman who Ruth worked with at the clinic. Lucille Moore was from the White Mountain area and may not have had the most outstanding reputation, should we say? Ruth told Jack that Lucille could show them around the area and keep them company during their hunting trip. So Thursday, October 15th, 1931, Jack picked up Ruth and Lucille for their evening together. While driving them back to Ruth's house for dinner, Jack mentioned he had promised to stop by Anne and Sammy's house to say hello. Ruth had been invited over to the girl's house that evening, but she had lied and said that she had business. She did not want to spend the evening with her ex-roommates. She also did not want Anne and Sammy to know she had introduced Lucille to Jack. Jack stopped by the bungalow anyway and went into the house to visit with his friends. Ruth and Lucille stayed in the car which must have been really awkward. Eventually, Anne and Sammy came out to visit them in the car. Ruth has claimed that no bad feelings were shown that evening and that they had a pleasant talk. The roommates even invited the two women in for dinner, but Ruth declined. She said that she had dinner in the oven at her house. The evening went by fine. No one had any idea that this was to be the beginning of the end. Sammy and Anne had less than 24 hours before they would be dead. The next day was Friday, October 16th, 1931. Ruth got home from work at about 6.30 p.m. 
She fed her cat and polished up for a dinner date with Jack Halloran. She waited and waited and waited for him, and he never showed up. About 9 p.m., she finally decided Jack had stood her up for dinner. This was not the first time that he had pulled this trick. So she grabbed the Indian school trolley, which, if you know Phoenix, Indian school is a very busy throwaway through the, through the, through the city. So she took the trolley and went down to Anne and Sammy's house to play bridge. She wanted to have some fun with her friends that night instead of sitting home waiting for a boy. Ruth arrived, and the girls invited Ruth to stay the night due to the trolley line stopping early for the night. They wanted to stay up and talk, so Ruth agreed. The girls got ready for bed and continued to visit while laying down for the night. Ruth said they sipped warm milk as they were enjoying each other's company. As they talked, the conversation turned to Jack Halloran. With all three girls having feelings for Jack, this wasn't an easy conversation. Anne began getting upset at Ruth because Ruth had introduced Lucille and Jack. So we have some more scandal here, Mel. Lucille was known to have syphilis. Ruth argued she didn't think Jack would be interested in Lucille anyway, and that Anne shouldn't speak about someone else's medical issues. Okay, I get both points of view here. I understand why Anne didn't want Jack to get involved with Lucille, and if she has syphilis, that can be pretty risky. Yeah, you're right. I mean, if she has syphilis, Jack's going to get syphilis. It's going to cause a problem. You're right. Risky for Jack and any of his other partners, like Anne, Sammy, and Ruth. But, you know, we don't know for sure who his partners were at the time. It seems like he probably had many partners. <laughs> With that high libido, I would think so. Yep. yep. I would make the same guess. Also, you know, Ruth is right, though. They probably shouldn't be discussing someone else's health issues. Yeah. And I get, but I also get why it would be a concern. Yeah, totally. Not to mention there was probably some jealousy going on there, too. So to throw in another woman would probably be not a good plan. Definitely. The women continued to argue. Sammy joined in to support Anne, and it started to get out of hand. They began name-calling, yelling, and the fight really escalated at this point. Ruth claimed that she got up and went into the kitchen to put away a glass of milk. I can imagine she was just trying to get away from the conversation, trying to get herself under control. Definitely. So Sammy allegedly followed her into the kitchen holding a 25 caliber handgun. So we are not gun people. We had to research this a little bit. Thank you, Christian, yes. who is Becky's husband. Thank you, Christian. A uh, 25 caliber <laughs> gun is a super small handgun that was nicknamed a pocket pistol that a woman could carry in her clutch. Yeah, we've seen them in movies and everything. They're just the really, really small, small guns. So Ruth and Sammy started to fight over the gun. Um, a shot was fired and a bullet went through Ruth's left hand. Ruth grabbed a butter knife in self-defense and stabbed Sammy in the shoulder. Ouch, with a butter knife? Both women fell to the ground and fought over the gun. Two more gunshots rang out. Sammy was hit in the shoulder and the chest. Anne came at Ruth from behind and started to beat Ruth in the head with an ironing board. Ruth turned around and fired a shot at Anne. Anne fell to the floor. Ruth said she wasn't sure how many times she shot at Anne. Ruth lost consciousness, and by the time she woke up, both women were dead. When she woke up out of her haze, Ruth found herself lying between the bodies of her two best friends. And we need to remember this story that we just told is coming from Ruth. So we, of course, don't have the side of the story from Sammy and Anne. So just kind of keep that in mind. But this is what Ruth said. Mm -hmm. After gaining her wits, Ruth got up, took off her pajamas, and put her dress and shoes on that was left in the other room. She hurried out of the bungalow and caught the last trolley back to her house to grab her pocketbook. She had to walk the last few blocks and arrive home about 11.30 p.m. 
as she arrived home, she saw Jack Halloran waiting outside her home. Ruth claimed he was dead drunk. She told Jack what happened and he didn't believe it. Ruth wanted to call her husband, but Jack convinced her not to call him. Still not believing Ruth's story, they drove Jack's car to the bungalow. Jack wanted to see it for himself. They entered through the front door and Jack got his wish. He saw what had happened between the three women. Ruth said Jack picked up Sammy and carried her over to the bed. When he dropped her onto the mattress, Ruth recalled seeing hundreds of tiny droplets of blood sprayed against the walls. Jack told Ruth to get to work cleaning the bloody mess up in the kitchen. She started to clean by trying to mop up the blood off of the tile floors. She couldn't do it. She was shaking and crying and her injured hand throbbed and made her lightheaded. Ruth talked of turning herself in and Jack became quite angry. Ruth said, quote, he told me he would take care of everything himself and that everything was going to be all right, but to say absolutely nothing to no one. Jack took the mop and started to clean up the mess. He called a friend of his, a Dr. Brown, to come over to the bungalow to attend to Ruth's hand. Ruth was concerned that Dr. Brown could get Jack in trouble by bringing him into this mess that had happened, but Jack just stated that he had enough on Dr. Brown to have him hang. Jack tried calling Dr. Brown several times, but there was no answer, so he was going to have to find another solution to help Ruth with her hand. Jack went out to the garage and found two heavy traveling trunks. Ruth was hysterical and becoming more and more upset by each passing minute. I imagine she's like coming out of shock. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. And the pain in her hand. Yeah. And then just being back there and seeing all the blood Mm -hmm. and what happened. Jack insisted on taking her home. He said she needed to rest and get a hold of herself. Jack said he was going to put the bodies in trunks and bury them in the desert somewhere outside of Phoenix. Well, things did not go as Jack had planned. Jack drove Ruth back home and she spent the evening worried and weeping. In the morning, she called into the clinic to take the day off but her supervisor insisted that she come into work. Ruth worked that Saturday with her hand throbbing and swelling from the gunshot wound. The bullet was still lodged inside of her hand. I cannot imagine that pain. It was so painful, especially she's doing secretarial work. So I can't imagine that day that she had. Around lunchtime, Jack Halloran called Ruth and told her to meet him at the bungalow that evening to, quote, talk things over. After work, she took the trolley straight to Anne and Sammy's home and entered through the front door. Ruth said her heart fell as soon as she walked into the house and saw the big traveling trunks. Jack had not buried them like his original plan. Jack said that he had decided it was too risky and he had come up with a better plan. Um, I don't know if this is a good idea. I don't think this is a good plan, Jack. No. So we are going to take a break and hear one more word from our sponsors. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code red handed. Thank you to our sponsors. So let's get back to to Jack's plan. 
Jack's new plan was to have Ruth take the trunks herself on the train to Los Angeles. While in Los Angeles, the trunks could be disposed of properly by his contact, uh, Williams or Wilson. Ruth couldn't remember his name exactly. It was either Williams or Wilson. Um, Jack's friend that uh, would meet Ruth at the train depot and then take care of the trunks. Mm -hmm. He said that she just needed to follow the plan and her problems would all be gone. Ruth agreed to this plan because her husband, Dr. Judd, was in Los Angeles. She trusted him that he would remove the bullet from her hand and she could visit her brother, who was attending college in L.A. Jack promised to get her a train ticket for the following day. He would purchase the ticket and leave it ready for pickup at the ticket stand there at the train station. Jack said he would tell his friend, this contact in L.A., to meet her at the train station the next morning. Jack also left her a phone number to a delivery service who would take the trunks and load them onto the train as freight. There was no physical way for Ruth to handle the trunks herself. She couldn't even move them more than just like an inch or two. Jack left through the front door and Ruth was on her own left at the bungalow. She would not see Jack again until they both sat in a courtroom. So Jack is bailing. It's so crazy that Jack is putting in so much effort to try and protect her. Mm -hmm. This seems like a lot. The following day, October 18th, the Lightning Delivery Service came to the bungalow to pick up the trunks. The men tried to handle them, but they were much too heavy for the company to accept. Ruth would need to get them to the train depot herself somehow. She panicked. Ruth asked the delivery men to take her and the trunks to her nearby apartment. The men agreed to help. She must have really used that charm because these trunks are heavy. Once the men had left the trunks in Ruth at her apartment, she had a nightmare of a task to perform. Ruth needed to open up the trunks and divide the contents into smaller bags to lessen the weight of a single bag. Between throwing up in the bathroom and running outside for fresh air, she was able to complete this terrible task. To avoid touching the body parts, Ruth would use towels, newspaper, and other things to cover up her hands. Not to get too graphic here, but she also, when the trunks got lighter, she would lift them up just a little bit and let the pieces of the bodies roll out into the smaller bags. Hearing Ruth talk about this night was just terrible, terrible. In total, the bodies of her two dear friends fit into four suitcases, two large travel trunks, one small suitcase, and a hat box. That same day, Ruth asked her landlord, Mr. Howard Grimm, to assist her with the trunks and help her get them to the train depot. Mr. Grimm and his son, Kenneth, were happy to help Ruth. She had always been so kind. When interviewed by law enforcement during the investigation, the men recalled the extremely heavy weight of the trunks. Ruth apologized for the, for the heavy weight. She said that the trunks were full of her husband's medical books and that he needed them in Los Angeles, so, so she was taking him up to L.A. for him. Even in October, Phoenix can be hot, so with the sweat rolling down their faces, the men got the job done. Ruth carried out the small bag and the hat box herself. She was on her way. After arriving at the train depot, the train service flagged the travel trunks for excessive weight. They were overweight by 170 pounds. As she recalled later, Ruth said her heart fell into her stomach. She thought they would refuse to transport the trunk 
or possibly force the trunks open. So get this, the larger trunk weighed 235 pounds. I'm actually really surprised the men could move it, seriously. That's crazy. The smaller trunk was 180 pounds. Instead of refusing to transport them, they asked for an additional, this is kind of humorous to me, they asked for an additional $4.50, which today would be about $82. She happily paid the additional cost and boarded the train. I'm sure she thought her nightmare would soon be over. Ruth arrived at the Los Angeles train depot 12 hours later. Jack Halloran had told his contact, Mr. Williams or Wilson, to look for a slender woman in a brown suit. Ruth waited, yet no mystery man approached her. Worried, Ruth phoned Jack Halloran's house. The housekeeper answered the phone and told Ruth that Mr. Halloran was unavailable. Jack had just left for a hunting trip with friends and would be unreachable for several days. Ruth was on her own in L.A. For a time, Ruth left the trucks unclaimed. Inspector Brooker, a baggage inspector for the railroad, had kept a close eye on those particular trunks. The trunks had, again, that terrible, terrible smell. They were literally dripping blood. Ruth finally went over to the two trunks and waited. She had phoned her brother to come and pick her up from the train station. The two other bags she traveled with, the valise, the valise is a small suitcase, and the hat box were not with Ruth or the trunks. She'd actually panicked and she left them hidden in the ladies' washroom. Just before 12 p.m., a Ford Roadster backed up to the tainted trucks. Ruth's brother, Burton McKinnell, had arrived and was getting ready to load her luggage. Winnie Ruth Judd presented her baggage claim tickets and requested her bags to be released to her. Jim Anderson who is Inspector Brooker's supervisor, was called over and began to question Ruth about her trunks. The inspectors had been kind of keeping an eye on him, watching the bags closely. They knew something was was kind of fishy about these. Ruth claimed that the luggage was full of personal items and there was nothing suspicious in the trunks leaking blood all over the train depot. That's how I travel with (laughs) leaking blood luggage. The inspectors insisted that Ruth open the trunks for inspection, but Ruth claimed to not have the key. She told the men her husband had the keys and she was unable to open the luggage. Inspector Anderson offered his telephone to Ruth to contact her husband, but she declined. Inside, I'm sure she was going into full panic mode. The inspectors later reported to the police that Ruth looked rattled, scared, and in a big hurry to get out of there, which I'm sure she was. They also reported that Ruth's brother, Burton, seemed confused at Ruth's strange behavior. I I have to say here, I am so bad in any situation where I have to be deceitful in the least little bit. If I were Ruth, I would have just, like, taken off running. Just, just taken off. Just ran away. Just ran away. Yep. So... Anyway, Ruth, without any other option, the inspectors allowed Ruth to leave without her bags with the promise that she would return with the key so that they could perform, you know, the proper search. Ruth grabbed Burton's arm and pulled him towards his Ford car. She wanted to get out of the train station as quickly as possible and didn't look back. Hours later, the two trunks still sat on the train depot, oozing blood and the perimeter of the awful stench growing by the minute. Ruth was not returning for her bags. So with no Ruth to open the trunks, the LAPD were called in and Lieutenant Frank Ryan came down to the train station. Picking the locks like a professional thief was his specialty. 
But I'll tell you, before he had them open, he knew what was inside by his experience in law enforcement. I'm sure that smell is something that you just Mm -hmm. never forget. Yeah, people say once you smell the smell of a, a human that you will never, never forget that smell. It's very unique. Apparently, I don't know. I don't know either. Thank Mm -hmm. goodness. Lieutenant Ryan and the inspectors faced a heinous sight. Wrapped in rags and clothing, a head, torso, and lower legs were stuffed into the black shipping trunk. Found within minutes after the trunks were opened, the valise and the hat box were discovered behind a door in the ladies' washroom. The valise held upper legs dressed in shreds of pink pajamas. The hat box contained a surgeon's kit with different cutting instruments, a 25 caliber pistol, a box of 25 caliber ammunition, and a bread knife. Next to the gun, scalpels, knife, and ammo, makeup, including face powder and a pretty deep rose-colored rouge. No excuses in the 1930s. A girl always needs to look her best, even when she's doing dirty work. And that is where we're going to leave you. You'll need to wait till next week to hear the rest of the curious tale of Winnie Ruth Judd. Yes, it does get really, really crazy. So that's the end of what we're going to tell you today. And until next time, keep keep your your hands clean. clean. Hey, thanks for listening. Thank you for supporting Rocky Mountain Red Handed. And please go follow us on our social medias. Um, We'd love to hear your comments and we want you to see all the pictures and the sources that we've posted. Our Instagram and our Facebook, again, are Rocky Mountain Red Handed. And our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. And don't forget to email us. Yes. Mel, what's that email? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Yeah, send us your case recommendations from your local community. Have a great day.